The Four Horsemen. What you have here is the Four Horsemen, united, live and exciting color. Um, not those Four Horsemen. These Four Horsemen discuss theology from different viewpoints, different perspectives, as we show people how to have discussions without turning into a keyboard warrior. Are you stupid? Now, here's the Four Horsemen. Amen. Yes. Here we are. Welcome back to the Four Horsemen podcast. We are glad to be with you again. Uh, to my left over here, we've got Brother Dennis Thurman. That's the only time I'll ever be the left of anything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, we put the far right on the far left. <laughs> and over here to the right, on the right side of things, That's we've right. got Ben Heisey and Ben Kermis. So yes, right. Kerman, ben Squared. And uh, we're, we're thankful to be back. But uh, we're going to dive into a topic that's... Uh, something that's been debated for hundreds upon hundreds of years, and we plan on solving it today. Exactly. Uh, So we, uh, uh, no, but we're going to be talking about uh, deacons and elders in the church or deacons and pastors and uh, the two scriptural offices in the church. And as we get started, uh, the the guys around this table, we're all uh, Southern Baptist guys. And so we've got the Southern Baptist faith and message that kind of we're going to open up with. It says, a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the Lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural offices are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. So as you can tell, uh, this paragraph and, and the Southern Baptist faith and message is broken down into points or uh, different doctrines. It gives very little information on the two offices, but it does offer some scriptural support. Uh, so we're going to go there next, and then we're going to look at deacons first. And so as we're bringing the Bible in, I'm, I'm going to bring the Bible into it today. Absolutely. Uh, so. Deacons were in, well, they entered into the picture, if you will, in Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1 and, and basically going through verse 7. Uh, so, you guys, I know you're, you're sitting around the table, you've studied this, you've gone into detail. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about why, who, and for what purpose these deacons were brought into the picture? Well, I think what you have here is a very practical response to a a crisis that occurred. And when you see the church in its inception, the organization of that assembly began to develop, uh, and it it was a process that they went through. Uh, It's just like, you know, when you're born physically, uh, you have within you all the potential to be everything that you need to be, but it's going to take some time for that growth to happen, for you to develop these abilities. In the same way, the church being birthed at Pentecost began to develop. And so here you have this situation that calls for a need that arises. And so uh, the what do they do? They bring it to the preachers and dump it in their lap, which is pretty commonplace, I think. 
But the result is that here you have these other men, these spirit-filled, faith-filled men that are chosen from the assembly. And you talked about a democratic process in that, uh, whether you read there moments ago, uh, in that the people themselves saw this and under the lordship of Christ, we trust. We know it was then and, and we trust in each situation. That's where these men were, were set apart for that specific purpose as servants of the church. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I think it's, um, you know, as, as far as Acts 6 goes, it just shows you that um, with the growth of the, the church, the birth of the church, there was more tasks that needed to be done than the pastors and elders could accomplish, the apostles at the time. And what was so um, ingenious about it, of course, we know that it was led by the Holy Spirit, was that the Holy Spirit um, prompted them to utilize the spiritual gifts of the Christians um, who were in that initial church. And I think that um, under that leadership, they were able to empower these uh, seven called men to go out and fulfill a need um, that was at hand. And, you know, as we see at the end of, um, of that account in Acts 6, that the church actually grew. Because of that decision, more people were added to the church because the deacons were empowered to do their um, to do that responsibility in taking care of the widows. I think it also unified the church. You know, there was a, that was a dividing point for the church between the the Hellenist Jews and the Hebraic um, Jews and their widows. And you know, the deacons started out being unifiers, and I think that's a key um, characteristic that any deacon should possess is they need to be unifiers. If, if you're out there and you want to be a deacon and you're someone that wants to stir the pot all the time, you're not qualified to be a deacon. Um, you need to be a unifier. And mm -hmm. I think that's the key, one of the key characteristics of a godly deacon. I think, uh, Dennis, you appreciate this. Uh, I think what we, what we see in that text is uh, the elders have basically two functions, which is, uh, or the apostles in that case, is uh, instruction, and I had another eye. What was it? Uh, intercession. There you go. Instruction and instruction and intercession. That's good. Uh, so you know, prayer and and the ministry of the word was their primary responsibility. And so, basically, if you could summarize deacons in one word, it's logistics. You know how how does how does the the work of the ministry get carried out? Mm -hmm. How does it operate? Uh, how how does the day to day get done? And Deacons take that burden off so that uh, the men, because I mean, even at this time, you think about it, the apostles, they just had the Old Testament. And some of them were writing the New Testament. Well, how did they have time to even write any of this stuff down? Somebody had to figure out, well, who's going to eat or how's the money getting taken up? And is it going to the right place? And where are we going to meet at? And somebody had to figure all that stuff out. And like you said, Ben, it was just too, it would, it would have been too much for them, especially with the explosions of growth that they were having. Mm -hmm they had their hands full just trying to disciple these thousands of people that were coming to Christ and raise up more elders. They had their hands full doing that. They couldn't figure out, you know, how much food do we need to have and be organizing potlucks and doing all that kind of stuff. So. Mm -hmm. As I looked at uh, those seven verses, I kind of broke it down just a little bit. And some of the things that it says there specifically, it says the need was there to make sure that all the widows were taken care of. Right. Um, I think there was an issue that, that was there under the surface, probably because the, the Hebraic Jews, uh, they were the chosen people, and so they had held on to this, this God uh, for themselves in a lot of cases. And, and now the, the Gentiles uh, who are being converted are being brought into the picture, and, and they don't seem to want to care for them in, in the same way. 
and they're being neglected in uh, the daily distribution it says so the need was there definitely the 12 the the people the apostles who were uh, focused on preaching teaching prayer they needed to keep their focus on spiritual matters um, then it says pick from among you i think this one is important uh, they were speaking to the other disciples who were there, who were following along, and they said, look, pick from among you. So they must be disciples already. Um, I was in a church one time where I had somebody come up to me, and they said, you know, I think so-and-so would be a great deacon. Well, this individual, he had never served. He really wasn't following Christ uh, closely at all. And I looked back at the person. I said, what would uh, make you feel like that person should be a deacon? They said, well, I think if we called them to be a deacon, then that would give them a reason to step up and to, <laughs> to be, you know, this person that they're supposed to be. Uh, and that's not good. But we see here, it says, you pick from among yourselves. You pick from people who are disciples already. Then it says they must have a good reputation, be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So there's three major things there that they must have. Uh, and we also see that the people picked them, but the apostles approved them by the laying on of hands. Um, and so when we're looking at our congregations, I think it's a good idea to, to look at this example, uh, at least in most cases, and, and the church would uh, see these people, recognize these people, and maybe present them. Our churches call it what a nomination process in a lot of a lot of uh, churches. Right. Um, so they would kind of put them forth, um, but it seems as though the elders would have the last say, or they would at least have the confirmation or the affirmation of that person. What do y'all think about that? Well, I know that you put these men through in a typical church situation, an ordination council. So they're brought before a group of leaders, elders, deacons. There's a whole process to go through where their testimonies heard, where their lives are examined, where they're asked to uh, consider their responsibilities and make commitments to honor those responsibilities. And then, of course, the church has to endorse that, and it takes a certain percentage. In our, you know, Pole Creek, it took, what, 75%, uh, I think. I believe you're right, 75 for, for that to happen. Yeah. And, uh, and then there would be the laying on of hands, uh, setting them aside in a very public fashion. So throughout all that process, I think there is that, uh, that awareness of the strategic responsibility of these, of these men and the spiritual vitality that they had to possess. I mean, you look you, in that first group, if you want to call them deacons, though they're not specifically named that, I think we see the function there for sure but but you look at like like philip and stephen i mean these men were giants in the faith they were capable of preaching you know uh, philip goes on this great evangelistic thrust stephen becomes the first martyr and so you know when you look at all of that you see that these men had a vital role in what they did but the church of course had to call them out and affirm them that's right yeah i think the elders um place in all of that is very important especially from a theological perspective, because there is that um, theology that a deacon needs to hold, and that theology really affects every way, everything that you do in a local church, um, what you believe about God, what you believe about church, and, you know, it's important for the elders to be able to to vet those men who, um, who want to serve or who have been nominated, but um, overall, I mean, if, if a deacon gets um, ordained and placed upon the deacon ministry team of the church, at the end of the day, if you get a bad deacon, it's going to fall back on the elder. 
So um, it's obviously I think it's natural that the elders need to sign off. And when I say elders, for you, those of you who are listening, I mean pastors, pastors and elders. Well, I think we would all agree or we're probably using as synonymous terms mm-hmm. today. So if you hear us say elder, we, we mean pastor. If you hear us say pastor, we mean elder. It's the same same office in Scripture. So, mm-hmm. so for us, we, we actually, the way that we function is the elders actually nominate deacons to the church. Um, so now, of course, a, a member could come up to us and say, you know, have you guys considered this this guy? Um, I think he's doing, I mean, so obviously they could come up to us and make that recognition that's happened before. Uh, but generally what we do is, is we, we try to keep our eyes open for a guy. Our our thought is, you know, God ordains deacons. That's something that that's a ministry that the Holy Spirit, it's a calling that he gives to a man. So the church is just affirming something that God's already done. The same thing with deacons and elders. Um, the Holy Spirit's the one that makes an elder or a deacon. We're just agreeing with him about what he's doing. And so, like all of our deacons currently are men who were basically doing deacon ministry, whether they were called or not, just because, like you said earlier, Ben, they were just using their gifts and trying to be obedient. And so we recognize that and said, you know, this man is qualified according to Scripture. He's already doing the ministry of a deacon. And we come to the church and basically say, you know, we believe that God has made this man a deacon. And as your elders, you know, we're, we're committing into you and we want you to decide as a church whether you agree you know, does this man have the reputation? Does he have wisdom? Does he have the sound doctrine um, based on our recommendation? And so it, it's a, a little bit backwards from like a normal nomination. And I don't have a problem with the church uh, taking nominations that way. But I agree with what you said too, Ben, that um, uh, there are theological qualifications for deacons. They might not be in a teaching ministry, but one of the ways that they help uh provide unity in the church is as by providing doctrinal clarity right so if you have an unregenerate deacon which is worst case scenario or just a spiritually immature deacon if an argument or something comes up in the church over scripture or over some kind of secondary doctrinal issue he's not going to have enough firm ground to be able to bring two sides together right so you need somebody that knows enough to say well this is what our church's statement of faith is and if you're a member here then you agree with that so we all need to be on the same page on these things and not let these other things be divisive. Um, so we do it a, a little bit backwards process-wise from what you guys were saying, but I think the, the heart of it is kind of the same thing. Agreed. Yeah, I, I, I think that you're saying essentially the same thing. There's still affirmation from the church and the elders. Right. Either way, uh, there's affirmation there. I, now, one, I, one of the differences I would say, though, from some, some churches is uh, the way that we function is the elders are actually able to remove a deacon without congregational approval. Mm-hmm. So that's something that is a little different. In most churches, the congregation would have to vote a deacon out of office. Um, so we have the authority to do that in, in the event that he somehow uh, disqualifies himself as a deacon. So they have to be voted in by the church. The church has to affirm them. But say if the elders discover that he's in sin, maybe it's a sin that we're not trying to make public to the church or whatever, but it's something right. where he needs to step down. We have the authority to tell him, hey, listen. Uh, we're willing to work with you on this or whatever, but for now, you need to not be serving uh, in the role of a deacon, and we don't have to have a church vote for that. Mm-hmm. I served at a church, um, and very early on in my ministry, I was walking up to the platform on a Sunday morning to begin leading the, the service, and uh, a lady walks up to me, and she hands me a little piece of paper, and on the piece of paper, it had a list of names on there, 
And uh, it, these were, you know, all men from the church. And uh, she hands it to me and says, uh, you need to announce that we're having a vote on deacons at the end of the service. Now, I hadn't, I had no clue that this was going on. Somehow they were doing this behind the scenes or something. I don't know what it was, but um, they basically just walked up and handed me a, a letter and said, we're going to vote on these deacons, uh, becoming deacons at the end of the service. And uh, needless to say, I, I took that piece of paper, stuck it in my pocket, and we, you know, I never addressed it during the service. Um, and, and she came up to me afterwards, and um, I, I'll just tell you the, the reason why I specifically uh, stopped it immediately was because one of the men on there, I had one conversation with him. I've, I had only talked to him one time, and the man was living an immoral life. Mm. I knew it. Now, they might not have known it, but I did. I was definitely not going to let that list come out and him to be chosen. Um, and it, it, the more I found out about it, it was kind of a popularity contest. And so we, you know, we've got to be careful if our churches are doing these nominations processes, mm -hmm. these voting processes, that there is a process beyond that or before that where we're making sure that these individuals match up to what the scripture says about those deacons. Yes, sir. Um, and so I had a, a meeting with the deacons right after that service, called them together and uh, told them what was going on. And I said, this is not the way this is going to happen. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not saying I have absolute authority, uh, but in order for these deacons to move forward, I'm the pastor that I need to make sure that I can approve them and feel good about presenting them to the church. Um, and they just had no clue. That's just the way it's always been done. And so there may be a lot of people watching this. You're in churches just like that. Uh, I would definitely advocate for a process to be put into place whereby they are talked to. I like the idea you're, you're talking about. You're, you have an ordination council for pastors. You know, if you're going to become a pastor, uh, most everybody has to go through a process where we're questioned doctrinally and, mm -hmm. and personally and how our families line up and everything else. And then those men have to approve us before the process can even move forward. Uh, should be the same thing with the deacons. Y'all think so? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I would just say, too, I think cult culturally, because like you pointed out, Ray, a lot of our listeners and just people in general, especially in the American South, are dealing with those kind of issues like what you talked about. And, and a lot of it may not be malicious. Like you said, it's just tradition. It's always been this way or this guy's been a deacon for, you know, 200 years and he's just still going to be a deacon or whatever. Um, and I think one of the problems is, is like when you look at scripture, the, the deacons are like the, like the rock of the church that the, the pastors are depending on as kind of like a foundational, you know, they're their biggest cheerleaders of like, Hey, if I need something done and I need it done right, and I need it to honor the Lord, and I need it to bring the church together, I need to lean on these men, and I need to be able to trust them, you know, to carry out this ministry. Right. And yet, that's the total opposite of a lot of where we're at culturally, where the deacons, the, the the kind of the joke is that the deacons are the greatest enemies of the pastor in the church, and biblically, they should be uh, the teammates. That's you right. Know, they should be pulling in the same together, in the same direction, and. Um, the deacons should be the ones uh, championing the pastor and saying, hey, you know, uh, his job is to lead us in a biblical way, and we're, this is the way we're going to go, and 
we need everybody on board and we got we've got work to do we've got a great commission to fulfill instead of it being you know the divisions and and things like that and so unfortunately i think most people uh, that have grown up especially in a baptist context have grown up in an unhealthy environment with either unregenerate deacons or just just worldly like carnal uh carnal minded uh deacons that haven't had that good example but really the example we see in scripture is these should be some of the godliest holiest men i mean the the main distinction between them and the pastor is just teaching ability yeah so if you've got a godly man in the church that is is leading his family well and he's sound doctrinally and he's got wisdom and he's got all that and he's just not called to a teaching ministry that's a really great deacon candidate right there but the reality is, is if you hold those standards up to most churches, you, you end up with no deacons. And I've heard people make that argument before, you know, well, we've got to have some deacons. And so there's not anybody qualified here, so we'll take these guys. And sometimes it's better to have no deacons than have bad deacons. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Sometimes I think it's better not to have any at all than to have men who don't actually uphold the qualifications. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that was important. What, what you're saying there, Ben, is that it's, it's a team effort. So there should not be what's viewed as maybe... The, you know, you've got the power block of the elders and the power block of the deacons, and they kind of balance each other out. And, you know, if the pastor gets too crazy, then the deacons are running him in. If the deacons get too crazy, the pastor, it, it shouldn't be divided that way. It should be just one solid team. And this is a, a book by Nine Marks called Deacons. Uh, this one is written by Matt Smithhurst, and I think this is a very good book. Actually, our deacons at Pole Creek are going through this book right now. But if I could, I just wanted to read a quick little quote out of here. It said, the purpose of deacons is inseparably tied to the priority of the elders. The late Presbyterian theologian Edmund Clowney observes, the account of Acts 6 and the broad use of diaconus in the letters has therefore led to the conclusion that deacons are assistants to the ministers of the word, rather than officers charged specifically with the ministry of mercy. Now, you guys may disagree or agree with that, but I think it's important to see how the the office and the responsibilities of the deacon are tied inseparably to the office of elders. Um, the deacons are not to operate unilaterally or in an isolated manner from the elders, but they are to operate within the oversight of the elders. Um, it says this, by the way, is why it is misguided when deacons function as a separate power block or a second house of the legislator through which bills need to be passed. Dever, Mark Dever, offers a helpful illustration. So I think this is probably good to think through. If the elders say, let's drive to Pittsburgh, it's not up to the deacons to come back and say, no, let's drive to Philadelphia instead. They can legitimately come back and say, our engine won't get us to Pittsburgh. Perhaps we should reconsider. That's very helpful. But in general, their job is to support the destination set by the elders. Well, I think that's good. But uh, the only caveat I would throw in there uh, is where it speaks of the deacons as being uh, those who understand the mysteries of the faith and hold that in good conscience. There, there needs to be people in there that would be kind of like gatekeepers, if you will, mm -hmm. that are sitting on that pew that are listening to what's being taught, that are observing the moral uh, integrity of the membership. And, and to me, deacons can serve that kind of balancing mm -hmm. purpose. Sure. Not like sure. a, the second house of the legislature. I, yeah. I, I see that. Right. But those that would be willing to say to a pastor, uh, while you were teaching there, I'm not sure that that's biblical. If you thought through these issues yeah. or, or you see someone in the congregation that is slipping into the moral lifestyle, to be willing to confront that. And so I think they can serve that uh, serve that purpose in, in that respect. Mm -hmm. That's good. 
Um, well, as we see Acts 6, uh, the institution of these men that we would call deacons today, if we look at 1 Corinthians 3, 8 through 13, it gives us a little breakdown of what those deacons should be uh, and should not be, for that matter. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, so it, it kind of gives us a, a back and forth in a sense. It, you know, it says it must be dignified. So looking at it from a positive way, it must be dignified. Then it goes, but not double-tongued, not two-faced, if you will. Uh, not addicted to much wine. And we can argue that all day long on what exactly that means, but we, we know that that means uh, essentially not, they shouldn't be drunkards. Right. Uh, they shouldn't be falling into alcoholism, if you will, or any other thing that would cause them to be filled with any spirit other than the Holy Spirit. Um, not greedy. Um, so what do you think about these uh, these qualifications, if you will? Can we expect deacons to be all here? Or is there some leeway on this? Or how do we deal with deacons if, uh, and we'll just say deacons who have already become deacons, they've been ordained deacons, just say they get to that point. Uh, it's easy to, to prevent on the front side. But how do we deal with these things after someone becomes a deacon? They're disqualified. Immediately. I, I mean, I, I think with the qualifications, and it's the same thing with elders, I'm sure we'll get there too. Yes. Because you know, there's lots of qualifications there. Those qualifications are not saying that a man must perfectly observe these things at all times. So it's not saying, you know, if you've ever been quarrelsome at some point in your life, uh, then you're automatically disqualified. Like only a man who's never had an argument can be a pastor. You know, obviously that disqualifies everybody, including uh, me especially. Um, but I think it's talking about uh, is, is, is a man characterized by these issues? So, for instance, uh, you may have a man, I mean, like, going down the trail of the wine issue. You may have a man who at some point maybe uh, drank recreationally, maybe had more than he should have had, and that was a sin for him to do that. Uh, a guy who did that, you know, uh, once or something like that is not disqualified for the rest of his life from being an elder. A guy who cannot be around alcohol because he has no self-control and is totally unable to stay sober is disqualified. If he's characterized by drunkenness or by uh, abusing his wife or by being a contrarian and always arguing with people if that's how he's characterized then he is disqualified so you know if, if a if you're listening and you're a pastor and you go into a church and you've got deacons in there and you've got one deacon it doesn't matter if you say the sky is blue he's going to vote against you and he's going to pitch a fit and he's going to try to get you fired because you did anything that he doesn't like that man's just not qualified to be a deacon. It doesn't mean that he's not saved. It, it doesn't mean any of those things, but it does mean he's not qualified. Now, that's different than being in a meeting, and, and maybe you have a deacon who does disagree with you, 
on a specific issue and says, hey, I, I'm on board with you, but on this thing, like what Dennis was saying, maybe he has a concern or something like that. You don't you don't kick out a man for having a, a disagreement. But there's a difference between having a disagreement and being a disagreeable person. Mm-hmm. And so I think if if you go into a church and there's a man who's characterized by one of those uh, qualifications there, then then he is immediately disqualified because he should have never been deacon to begin with. But my whole thing, when you look at those qualifications that are found there, those are the attributes that every Christian ought to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to be at different levels of maturity, but that ought to be our, our aspiration. Now, there are, of course, folks sitting there that are never going to get up and, and proclaim a, a sermon and do an exposition. But as far as, uh, you know, being true to your word, not being greedy, being good with your family and loving with them. I mean, these are all things that every child of God ought to possess. And so to me, the the deacon and then, of course, the, the elder, there's a level of maturity that they've attained in that. Not perfection, but progression that they need to have. And so in that vetting process, you're looking for those things, but it should not be like, you know, if these are carnal people, uh, you know, in that case, I would be confronted with church discipline early, much less mm-hmm. considered to be a deacon. Absolutely. I, I do want to make one correction because I think I said 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 8 through 13, and it was 1 Timothy. So I just wanted to go back and correct that. He was just saying it behind the Bible. Right? Yeah. yeah. And from, that, from that passage of 1 Corinthians, what you said there just went up in smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All wood and straw. There, there we go. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, I, I like the way you put it. I, I love the way Ben uh, mentioned it, that they shouldn't be characterized by those things. I think that's important. I mean, we can all get a little upset and fly off the handle. You know, pastors, elders, deacons, whoever, we, we, we can all do that. But if we become that person, if we're characterized in that way where uh, we're just constantly flying off the handle, that that's a big difference. Um, and so sometimes we can fall into a sin and, and uh, praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit that convicts us and draws us back. Now, if we are, we're not drawn back, then yes, you know, we need to move forward and, and the disqualification comes into play for that as well. Um, we're going to move forward, unless y'all guys have anything else to say about deacons. We're going to move forward to elders, pastors, overseers, if you Bishops. will. <laughs> bishops, First uh, uh, Timothy chapter, yeah, King James version. First uh, Timothy chapter three uh, goes into that and says the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." So it begins by saying if anyone aspires to the house of overseer. How do y'all see that? I mean, do you do you think that that office is something that, uh, you know, maybe somebody wakes up one day and they say, you know what, I think today I, I, I want to be a pastor. I want to be an elder of a church. 
Uh, is it meaning that, or is it going somewhere else? I think I think it is in a, <clears throat> a large sense. Those who desire that office, um, certainly I've heard people say before, or at least they were told, um, you know, they told someone, well, I think I might be a pastor one day. And the person they were telling said, you need to run from that as hard and as fast as you can. If you can't get away from it, then pursue that calling. But um, ultimately, I think there has to be a desire there. And um, that can really be the only explanation for someone who wants to be a pastor, unless it's for greedy gain or something like that. But um, most people, I don't think, look favorably on themselves being in the you know, the ministry in that way. So I think someone who does say, I'd like to be a pastor, I mean, I think that is something worth exploring because there has to be a desire in your heart to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that you said that. One of the reasons why I delayed in uh, acknowledging that I believe God was calling me was I'd heard all these horror stories about how people (laughs) had to be tracked down and God had to basically almost take their children and you know, burn their house down, you know, for the time. I give up. I'll, I'll do That's it. just because you went to Fruitland. Well, <laughs> but, but, but it, in, in, my, in my heart, I, I really wanted to do this. Right. I just wanted to be sure that it was God that was putting that desire there, and it wasn't just something for me. But, uh, but I can recall times in which I, I just felt so excited about the possibility mm-hmm. of delivering God's Word and teaching His truth and shepherding a flock. But I believe God, the Holy Spirit, put that in my heart. So, right. mm-hmm. so I, I think there is an aspiration that can be there. Yeah, yeah. agreed. I could remember a professor at the Fruitland Baptist Bible College who made the statement very early on. I almost maybe one of the first classes we were there. He said, "You know, son, if uh, if you're here because Mama called you to the ministry, or because Grandma called you to the ministry, or because your church called you to the ministry, you need to pack up your books." And get on out of here now, because you're going to be a failure. You, you have it, that's just the way it's going to be. It's very encouraging. He said, I could get that, through that one. That that is very encouraging. But at the same time, it it hit home. We had one guy get up and walk out. Mm-hmm. He he in that moment he was like, yeah. Uh, somebody finally was straight with me. I mean, I felt like that was how well, he that saved him some he time paid. and some money. Yeah, yeah. a lot of yeah. time and yeah. money. Save the church. Too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. yeah, save the church. That's right. Um, and, and so I, I definitely think that this is a you know a calling from God. I can remember when when I first felt called to ministry, I became a deacon to avoid being a pastor. Mm. <laughs> um, my pastor came to me because I, I just wouldn't give in, but he came to me. He said, "I think you would make a good deacon in the church." And uh, I, I said, you don't know me. That was basically, you know, you, you don't know my history. You don't need my background. He said, I don't need to know. I know what Christ has done in you. And then I served as a deacon and was still miserable and then eventually gave in. But when when I finally responded and I started calling people or telling my wife, I, you know, I, I was at a youth camp. I was helping out with youth ministry. And uh, I, I finally reached that point where God had just broken me down. And, and I finally looked at my wife in tears and I said, I got something to tell you. She said, you're going to be a pastor. <laughs> I said, yeah, how did you know? She said, I've just been waiting on you. That sounds like my wife. Uh, and before I knew it, everybody I told, they said, well, right. it's about time. Right. It's about time. So you and were so behind everyone else. Everyone else knew before. Everyone else knew before yeah. I did. And, and it, now for me, that was very important because now there's some affirmation, you know, that confirmation that I think I needed mm-hmm. in that moment. But when I was, I can remember as early as probably 10 years old, my grandfather looked at me and said, son, one day you're going to be a preacher. And I about laughed 
every time he said it, there's no way. And I ran from it as hard as I could. And uh, I was in my, I was 30 years old when I responded to the ministry and finally uh, did that. And then, you know, somebody reminded me that my grandfather called that, you know, 20 years prior. And uh, he, maybe he saw something, I, I don't know, but I think sometimes God clarifies it with other people before we finally get it. I mean, any of y'all experience that? Yeah. I, I mean, so you have an internal call and an external call, you know, I mean, that's part of it. And uh, that, that aspiring to be a bishop, as the King James says, um, that is one of the qualifications. You know, I've met men before that I believed were elder qualified, but they didn't, they didn't have a, a calling to do that. Uh, they wanted to serve faithfully in the church. They were happy to teach a Sunday school class or do something like that. Godly men, uh, well-ordered home. I mean, met, checked all the boxes except for aspiring. That was just not something that the Lord had put on their heart. So I do think that's a qualification is that a, a man has to have the desire to do that. And I can definitely relate to some of what y'all said of of wrestling with that um, because there has to be that external call too of, you know, just because somebody wants to be a pastor doesn't mean that they should be a pastor. Right. There needs to there needs to be an affirmation from godly, wise, mature saints saying, "I, I see something there," um, and and that's one of the things that you you see happen happen a lot. You know, a lot of us have the same kind of educational background, and so we've all seen guys that come in that are you know they come in young and they're real excited because I'm going to go get a church and I only got to work one hour a week and. <laughs> on Sunday and whatever, you know, and they they have these grandiose ideas of what ministry is going to be like for them. And then um, then they get that that wake up call of like, hey, if you if you think that, that this this is not a calling that a godly man. Uh, that that a man who is unwilling to suffer should follow uh, Jesus said, in this life, you will have uh, trouble, but do not fear because I've overcome the world, you know. So he was very clear with them. There's a stricter judgment for those who teach. There's all these warnings there. Uh, it's not good that many of you should become teachers. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, oh. there's those kind of warnings in there. So so then if you feel compelled to continue on in that process, and there's a congregation that is affirming that of saying, we recognize, uh, again, just like with deacons, God has given you that ministry, whether you want it or not. He He's obviously chosen you. He's obviously raising you up. He's given you these gifts. We all see it, and we're acknowledging that. And that's part of what ordination is, is that process of not just evaluating of does this guy check all the boxes, mm -hmm. but uh, is the Lord blessing his ministry? Uh, is the Lord blessing his evangelism? Or are those kind of things happening? Because we've also seen guys who, I mean, I had a philosophy professor who had a PhD in religion who could quote more scripture than I could and was lost as Job's house cat. I mean, just was not even saved. Mm. But if he sat in an ordination council, he could tell you every single orthodox thing you ever wanted to hear and was capable of teaching and all that, and, and but didn't believe any of it. And so... Well, the devil could do all that. Yeah, exactly. The, de the devil has better theology than all of us. <laughs> yes. I mean, he really, he really does. He has perfect orthodox theology because he actually knows everything that's true. He just chooses not to abide by it. Right, right. Well, and I, and I sent, I think that sense of compulsion, that inward drive, is just absolutely crucial because there are going to be times that you're going to run into stuff. Uh, you're going to encounter difficulties and, and, you know, devilish people that if you don't have that, if, you, if there's not just something that grips you to say, say I cannot run, I, I've got to take my stand. This is what God has 
thrust upon me. Uh, you, you'll you'll hightail it out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll back down. You'll compromise. And so you've got to have that inward fire burning inside of you that I can't do anything else. Yeah, yeah. I, I did that. So before you know, we're we're sitting here at, at Barberville now. I've been here five and a half years. Before that, I left ministry for two years and just went and worked full time um, because I was doing youth ministry before, and I'm like, I'm tired of playing games and with whipped cream and Cheetos and nobody gets saved. Nobody's getting discipled over here. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm over that. And I just walked away from it. And I just said, Lord, if this is what ministry is, it's, that's, that's not what you've put in my heart. So I'm just going to go make money and take care of my family. And maybe my ministry is just my kids and I'll be okay with that. And, uh, I, I couldn't stay out, you know, after two years, the Lord started dealing with me and I started feeling the Holy spirit drawing me and he opened up the door here. I, in fact, uh, when, Chris, the other pastor here, first contacted me about my position here. I told him no uh, when he first reached out to me. Hey, we need somebody to work part-time with youth and children. I'm like, I'm not your guy. I told him that the first time we talked. I said, we're probably not going to agree about anything. There's no church around here that'll have me, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Lord just wouldn't let go. You know, uh, a friend of mine's at a church now. He turned them down two or three times. Of, I just, I don't, I don't think it's right. And they're like, no, we've prayed about it. We know that you're the guy, and he finally yielded and went, and the Lord's tremendously blessed his ministry out there and his faithfulness. But, um, but yeah, I know what that feels like to to where you can't. I mean, I've done a lot of other jobs. There's jobs where I've made almost no money. There's jobs where I've made really good money for what I did and different skills and different things like that. And uh, And at the end of the day, there were times where I chose ministry, even though it was almost no money, created hardship for me and my family but i just couldn't i couldn't not do it you know so i mean i know and i remember when i got ordained my pastor told me exactly what you're saying dennis he said you need to know for sure that you're called before you go into this because there's going to be days where that's all you have that's right you're not going to have encouragement you're not going to have money you're not going to have any of that the only thing you're going to know is i know i i can't not do this because god told me to do it and uh, there's been many times in my life where the Lord has put me at a crossroads of saying, you're either going to follow me in this or you you just need to walk away, walk away from all of it. Um, don't even don't even profess my name mm-hmm. or be yielded and go, go do this thing. And I've had many ultimatums in my life of staying or leaving somewhere over that. Yeah, I think every pastor in ministry has the common feeling of wanting to quit. You know, and I, I mean, I'm sure there's some pastors with a higher frequency than others, but I don't think there's a pastor out there that can not say that at one point he said, I want to quit. And that's been in his mind. And, you know, and I'll be honest, I've, I've felt that too before. But then as I think about it, I realize, well, sure, I could quit, but I'd be miserable. I wouldn't be happy doing anything else. Right. Even on my worst day in ministry, it's better than going back to the plant and working, you know, cause I was miserable there and I just thinking about how I, how I wanted to be in full-time ministry. And then God allowed me to be in full-time ministry. And, you know, I think it's that, that constant motivation in your heart where the Holy spirit has called you, you know, he's called you. And even on your most difficult day, you just have to realize I'm called to this and there's going to be days like this. And I'm just going to have to suck it up and just be a man about it. And, you know, we always want to have our pity parties and, you know, I, that's why I'm thankful for my wife. She won't let me have pity parties. And uh, she she tells me several times, well, this is what you've always wanted. Why would you want to quit? You know, 
So sometimes you need somebody like that in your mm-hmm. corner that's not going to let you have the pity parties mm-hmm. and quit. Yeah. But I think that goes back to the aspiring to be an elder. If you're truly aspiring to be an elder, then even in those most difficult moments, there's going to be something in you that says, yeah, you may want to quit, but you can't. You don't have that choice. You know? Let me just share this real briefly along that along the idea of it, having that external call because the Lord has has done that for me in the last year, uh, really when I wasn't expecting it. So the the short story is I always worked in youth ministry, family ministry. When I came to Barberville, I came as a family pastor working with family ministry, doing a lot of work with parents and parenting their kids and that kind of stuff. That's kind of been my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my originally when I went into ministry, my rules were no preaching, no working with kids. Um, you know, uh, don't go to Fruitland. That was my three, like, I'm not going to do that. And so then I went to Fruitland. I had a bunch of kids, started working with kids, and then started doing preaching. So last year during uh, COVID, I filled the pulpit a lot for other guys in the area. Since we have multiple guys, I could just kind of go because I wasn't preaching most Sundays. And so I have freedom here of them saying, hey, if somebody else needs you, feel free to go to go and preach for them and try to help that church out. And so I started preaching a lot more. And as I was doing that, the Lord started dealing with my heart of you need to be doing this more. And uh, and I I thought to myself, you know, well, Lord, you know, that's not that's not me. Like I'm doing this thing over here. And I started getting that 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 external call of when I was filling the pulpit, people were saying this this is helpful to me. The Lord's using this. The Lord's the Lord's blessing the preaching, and I'm like, you know, I don't know what to do with that. So then there was a there was a time last year where I actually got a blessing from one of my other elders to write a letter of recommendation for me and put my resume out because I said, you know, I'm I'm happy here. I don't feel like I need to go anywhere. Um, but I do feel like the Lord's dealing with my heart about preaching and I'm just going to kind of put it out there. And if he wants to do something with it, that's fine. But I would like y'all's a blessing, you know, on doing that. And so I received that from them. And through that whole process of searching it, my wife and I even prayed about, uh, international, uh, pastoring overseas somewhere and looked into that some. And, and after all that process, we came back around here and we said, if there was anywhere in the world that we could be, it would be this church is where we would want to be. Amen. And the Lord settled that in our heart. But then I'm like, okay, so what do I do? Because I'm not the main preacher here. We have a rotation, but I'm not the guy. So then beginning of the year, uh, this year in January, um, friend of our other pastors, uh, he celebrated 10 years here at the church. He's done tremendous work in revitalization. The Lord's really blessed his ministry here. He comes to us in an elders meeting and says, the Lord's put it on my heart that it's time it's time for me to transition to a lay role and go to work full time. I've been offered a full time job. It's something I love doing. It's good for my family. I still want to stay here. I'm not going anywhere. I want to raise my kids here. still want to be able to preach. But the Lord's just kind of released me from this role. And so then we're all perplexed of, OK, well, what do we do? We can't bring in another guy because our people don't don't know somebody else. And immediately the Lord the Holy Spirit started dealing with my heart of, okay, this, this is it. This is what I've been preparing you for. I'm like, well, how do I have that conversation? So long story short, I, I ended up having a conversation with him and just said, this is what the Lord's dealing with my heart about that. I need to be preaching more. He's dealing with your heart that you need to be preaching less. What does that mean? And his response was as well, the, the Lord's impressed on me also that you need to be, that you're ready to do this. So January one, I'll be transitioning from family pastor to teaching pastor and I've been transitioning this year of doing more of the preaching. And it was terrifying for me because as, as a guy who preaches uh, occasionally, 
to preach three or four weeks in a row, it's like, well, listen, if, if these people think my preaching is garbage, this isn't going to work. You know, attendance is going to go down and people are going to leave the church and, uh, you know, and fortunately instead the people here have been very loving and very supportive. And there's been that, that kind of external call of people saying, Mm -hmm. we see that the Lord's doing this in our leadership too. We believe that this honors God and, and, and we're in agreement with this too. Um, so that's just, that's just an example of kind of what that looks like. So it's been, it's been a very unusual year for me to have to transition into being a primary preacher when I've always, I've always been the guy that's like, Oh, that's not me. You had like three months to plan sermons. Now it's one week. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we could do a whole other conversation (laughs) on that, but that's been a huge challenge of having to preach in a week in week out. You know, I used to think, well, these guys that preach every week, you know, I can come up with a sermon in a couple hours. That's not really a big deal. Well, yeah, maybe if you're preaching to people that don't know the Bible, but like if you're preaching to people that are used to sitting under preaching, you can't just get up there and wing it. You've got to bring your A game, you know, and being able to do that week in, week out is is hard. And so that's that's been a it's been a big year of transition for my family and for the church and um, for our other elders and all that. But but that's an example of where I, I wasn't even looking for that. I wasn't even trying to go in that direction. And yet the Lord was just kind of working. But it wasn't just in my heart of me feeling like I feel like the Lord's leading me to do this and I'm uncomfortable about it. But there was there was that external element too of we think it's a good thing for you to aspire to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, of people that I respect, that I know love the Lord. You're always gonna have fans, right? You can be the worst preacher in the world and your mom is gonna like your preaching. Mm-hmm. You know, but if it's somebody else that you know doesn't have a, a good reason to be supportive and they are that's it, it helps sometimes to have some encouragement. The second week that I made that transition, I got up and preached, and I'm thinking I was I, I was so nervous. Even though I've been here for five years, I was just nervous because I'm like, you know, how are people going to receive me preaching on a regular basis? And there was a a, a respectable person in the congregation that day that uh, is uh, very known for preaching that um, sent us some comments and and some encouraging stuff about the preaching and that (laughs) that kind of just encouraged my heart of like okay this person listens to preaching all the time if if they thought it was trash they would tell me you know right right that's cool yeah uh i definitely think that if if you're supposed to be there god will work out the details Mm -hmm. And, and that's one of the key things probably all of us have those stories of how god has worked things out and sometimes we we see it in the rearview mirror. We we don't see it until it's it's kind of come and gone, uh, but we see how God worked some things out in order to bring us into this. When I first went into ministry, I was in, I said it was the best secular job I'd ever had. My wife had a great job. I had a great job, had a company vehicle. I mean, I was getting paid well, benefit. I mean, everything was great. And at the same time, I was feeling this call of God to, uh, you know, going to ministry and also going to school. Um, and I fought that, you know, quite a bit. And and I just said, wow, you know, why would God bless me in this way with the best job I've ever had? My wife's, you know, we love this area, the whole works. Um, but it was like one day I woke up and all of a sudden that job I love to get up and do every morning, I was miserable at. I mean, it, it was like a switch changed inside mm. of me where I no longer enjoyed getting up and going to work. It was a chore for me to do that each and every day. Um, and and it, it made it so clear. And then, uh, and, and I'll share this very quickly. I went to the Jacksonville Pastors Conference because I was serving kind of uh, bivocationally in ministry at the time. 
and I was wanting to go to school, but I was wanting to stay there. I was wanting to work, keep my job, you know, do everything online, whatever. Uh, and somebody introduced me to J.D. Grant. He was at the Jacksonville Pastors Conference in Florida, and uh, they they introduced me to him and said, you know, he's a vice president over at Fruitland Baptist Bible College, and uh, they said, you know, this is one of our ministers, and he's looking to go to school somewhere. Um, he he said, uh, well, what do you feel called to? And I said, well, I feel called to the, you know, the pastor. I feel called to preaching and teaching, that sort of thing. He said, well, you can go to school anywhere. And he handed me a business card. He said, but if you want to learn how to preach, come to Fruit. Amen. <laughs> Man, he had, he had that saying down. <laughs> so true. Um, but in that moment, it was like God used him. Mm-hmm. In Jacksonville, Florida, when I lived in South Carolina, used him down there to point me in the right direction. Right. And immediately when we came and saw the campus, met Scott Thompson, had those conversations, we knew exactly where we were supposed to be. And mm-hmm. that kind of set us on that track to to go into full-time ministry, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 4, as we go forward a little bit, um, it says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech and conduct in love and faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Um, so we see here that with elders, we've got a similar process as far as deacons go, where the elders are laying their hands on you. So if you were to explain it, uh, how you think it should go in a church, how should a man be brought into the church? Now, we, we know how things are done in most churches. Um, they've got a search team that they put together. They take in resumes. They advertise, you know, whatever. But what should that process look like in, in someone incoming to your church? Should there be a certain process you feel they need to go through? Or do you feel like that search team process is... Uh, A-OK, top-of-the-line situation. My experience has been that, that sometimes the, the people on the search team, it's, it's not always the case, but, but many times, they are are people that, again, that popularity contest, it's it's familiar members, folks who have been in positions of leadership that may or may not really understand uh, fully what it means to bring a pastor in. And so there's always that danger, I think, that uh, that they have these agendas uh, of mm-hmm. what they're wanting to accomplish. And again, I'm not saying they're they're bad people necessarily, but they have a frame of reference that's very limited in its scope in terms of what the church is supposed to to be about. Right. And and so I think there are some risks that are involved. Uh, so I, I think if you move to a situation where you've got a group of elders that understand these qualifications, spiritually mature men that really become the search team, if you will. Right. To me, that works a lot better than just selecting a group of folks from out of the congregation. Yeah. And so, and, and being, if, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but, but I think that's how Pole Creek has moved now, the, the way they operate in, in that regard. Yeah, that is correct. So the elder team would come together, they would review resumes, they would post the job, all the above. And then, um, you know, they could they could work in conjunction, obviously, with the personnel team and obviously with the finance team if it comes to a, a compensation package and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, the elders are bringing candidates. The elders settle on one candidate, and then that candidate, um, 
is then brought before the church for a church-wide congregational vote to affirm them or not. So and it's a 90% vote once someone reaches that level. But now under our new bylaws, originally before we were we had uh, search teams that would be nominated by the congregation, and then they would search for pastors and bring them before the church. But now it's the elder team mm-hmm. that does that. Yeah. Yeah, so for us, it's similar. The elders would, would function as a search team. But I would say... In an ideal scenario, the only time a pastor should come from outside of the congregation is when the church is planted. Uh, in an in an ideal situation, because because notice e- even with that text there with deacons raising up men from among you, these mm-hmm. are are known men that are a part of the congregation, and so if our churches were healthy, we should constantly be evaluating and raising up more men. Right. Um, I mean, our our hope here is that we would have a surplus of elders and deacons to share with other churches. And so if a church in our association needed a pastor or uh, maybe they're doing revitalization and they just need, they need some solid deacons that know how to come in and be good deacons and serve under another pastor that we would have a surplus to say, yes, we're, we're happy to send somebody to help, uh, help you guys in the work over there and, and be a blessing to you or with church planting, you know, if the opportunity comes up that we, have men that are ready that we that the church feels confident to send out um, to lead a congregation, and so um, that's the that's the ideal scenario. Um, the way the I would say the reason most often why churches now, especially Baptist churches, bring in a man from outside the congregation that people don't know is because they don't have any qualified men in the church. I mean, that's it's more of a necessity uh, for them to have. But in an ideal scenario, it should be either we've got multiple men in our church that we can pull from, or um, there's another local church, maybe in our association that uh, where there's a known man in the community, that's a a solid godly man. That's a pastor that could come from another church um, as opposed to, you know, I mean, think about trying to evaluate somebody according to qualifications. You know, one of the, one of the questions that doesn't get asked enough by search teams is, you know, what is this man's family like? What's his marriage like? What are his kids like? How is he discipling his kids at home? Uh, those things don't get evaluated, but the home qualifies a man for the church. And and it's easy to uh, either deceive people or just be misinformed when it's somebody you don't know. So when you call somebody, you know, we're in North Carolina, you call somebody from Colorado or California or somewhere like that. He's got a great resume. You've seen him preach online. Sounds good. He's not divorced as far as you know. And his kids are too young to, you know, be heck on wheels or whatever and you bring him over and then you find out you know he's got a porn addiction or um he wasn't faithful to his wife in his last church or mm-hmm. his kids you know uh you know are alcoholics or something you know what i mean like you find that kind of stuff out well why because he's not known wouldn't you say though that's the difference between a church looking for a professional pastor in a church looking for a called pastor, someone who's called by God or someone who's a professional. Well, I mean, man, that's that's a can of worms right there yeah. because because here here's the other thing is every everybody wants the magic guy that's going to make the church grow because they have more confidence in the preaching of the word than they have in the word itself. Right. And the reality is is that there's a lot of churches that there are a lot of mediocre pastors that are faithful godly men 
that will pastor local churches that that will receive a reward one day mm-hmm. for pastoring local churches. Oh, yeah. So like what you're saying is is like maybe they do have a qualified man in their church, but they'll say, yeah, but I mean he's just not as cool as this guy. We online. want a superstar. Yeah, you know? I mean like yeah, yeah, I mean he's it's the preaching's faithful. You know he's not preaching heresy and he is discipling people and he does manage his home well, but he's just not that exciting to listen to. And excitement is not a, right. a qualification. Now, now, granted, you can have people. Uh, part of teaching is working on it. It's a craft. We can have another conversation about that too. But, but yeah, I, I do. I do think that's an issue. Sometimes is what uh, uh, are you looking inside first before you are mm-hmm. before well, you're looking outside? Let me push back just a little bit with that. I, I think when somebody's raised up in the congregation, they understand that church culture. Mm-hmm. They know the community. Uh, there's a trust element that's involved there. Uh, so there's many advantages when that can be done. But occasionally, I think it is good to bring in somebody that has a fresh set of eyes that will, will see things that we don't see. They'll have true, a different true. perspective. They might yeah. push back in some of these ways mm-hmm. to help sharpen our focus. Again, I'm not saying that that ought to be the routine, but I do think there ought to be an openness uh, to that. Well, because there could be an existing system that if you bring someone up in that system, they're they're in the system, they've got the blinders on, and the system may not be that good. And yeah. it really needs a fresh set of eyes, a new perspective. It could well, be the good old boy network, really. Exactly. Yeah, or exactly. like I know, I know plenty of guys. I mean, the, the, the churches that have one pastor versus the churches that have plurality is like not even close ratio around here. I mean, mm-hmm. as far as I know, I mean, I know of one other Baptist church in our association here that technically has elders, but I don't. I'm not sure to what extent they're operating that way. So it's very so rare. So it's very, very in rare in in this area. Really, in, in general. Buckle County too. It's um, well, and they have elders. They just may not call them that. <laughs> well, and, and, they, and they may be deacons functioning as elders. Say, right, right, right. and the hybrid. That's yeah. an issue. But but my point is that um, when you're talking about kind of growing up in a culture, you know, I know a lot of guys that are good brothers. I mean, they love the Lord. They believe the Word. They preach the Word. They're doing good ministry, but the, but the idea of plurality is like not even on their radar at all. Right. They're like, listen, if I was the pastor of this church for thirty years and could do anything I want, there's a hundred other things I would do before I would switch to a plurality of elders. And it's not because they don't believe the Bible or there's it's it's a cultural thing of I don't I don't really see the need. I can just have an but associate. They're, pastor. they're not looking long term though. Even right. if they're there for thirty years, I mean, one beautiful thing of with Pastor Dennis when he left Pole Creek was he was looking beyond himself. Right. And I think every pastor should look beyond themselves. And the best way to look beyond yourself is to make sure there's other men there that can do exactly what you're doing, where everything doesn't rise and fall on you. Right. Because if, if it's a personality-driven church or you know whatever it may be, you are setting your church up for disaster. Right. And you're not really loving your church because you're basically putting all their trust and all their uh, reliance on you as opposed to uh, spreading the wealth and letting some other men do that job, you know? Right. Yeah. What... One of the guys who is a part of us, Adam, who's not here today with us, um, that's one of the things that I think is really cool about the ministry that he's at right now. He's seeing guys kind of coming up now mm-hmm. who are uh, coming into ministry. He's just had another gentleman uh, that's been leading a Bible study for uh, teenagers, for for youth, and um, he, he now feels called to the ministry and looks like he may be pursuing uh, that end. Um, and, and so Adam is able to, you know, walk away for a week and go on vacation and just one of those guys, boom, 
you know, Robert yep. or somebody else is just stepping right in there. Oh, yeah, that's great. Uh, able to lead, able to preach. Uh, you know, decisions can be made while he's not there, um, which which is a great thing. And, yes. and I think there's a huge benefit to having that. And I think what's gone on over the years in a lot of cases is our deacons, and you mentioned it just a moment ago, our deacons, because there's been a single pastor in, in a ton of these churches, um, they don't stay long. They come and go very frequently, you know, sometimes because of the pastor, many times because of the church. Right. Um, those deacons begin to function as elders. They're not right. biblically qualified necessarily to be elders, but they function as elders. And so the whole process is kind of skewed there right. in, in a bad direction. And so stepping into that as a pastor from the outside, and now coming to it from the inside, you're already in it. You're, you're going to have a, hard, a terrible time trying to change that from the inside if you've already been a part of it. But even if you bring somebody from the outside in, um, there's a huge culture shift that's mm. going to have to take place oh, yeah. in order for that to happen. Mm. And, uh, you know, Pole Creek moving to uh, to elders, a plurality there, um, <laughs> that's taken a lot of years oh, to, yeah. to, to move to that yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and, and thankfully it has. I, I, I definitely see the benefit in that. Mm. I, I would love to see where I serve now uh, currently moving in that direction at some point, because I would love to be able to set them up for when I'm not there. Right. Right. I mean, I I don't want long-term. Yeah. Yeah. If, if God calls me somewhere else in 10, 20 years, however long it is. And and all of a sudden that ministry, you know, is being led by one person mainly. Now you just remove that person from the scene altogether. If you haven't set that up in a structure in, in which they can continue to function biblically. Mm-hmm. Now they can keep functioning and, and the, the deacons can become elders and everything else because, you know, out of necessity. Um, but if we really want it to be able to succeed long-term biblically, then this is the way we need to go, I believe. Uh, I have a couple things I want to say about that. For one, I, I'm hearing this more often, which, I, which I'm glad, which is what you said, which is that uh, one of the problems that we've had is, is we have churches with, uh, el- with deacons functioning as elders I think the I think the greater problem than that is that we have is not that they're not qualified to be elders is that they're not qualified to be deacons. Mm. So if they were qualified to be deacons, they would have enough doctrinal understanding to know that they shouldn't be trying to be right. elders. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, see I, that. I think yeah. I think the reality I think if you fix that problem of what is a deacon and is this man qualified, a lot of that other stuff will kind of start yeah. to sort itself out if he understands what his boundaries are and what his yeah. responsibilities are. So I think that's one. The other thing is, you know, Ephesians 4, or, you know, why are pastors te- and teachers given to the church? For the equipping of the saints for the work of right. the ministry. In That's other right. words, if you're doing all the work of the ministry, or if the ministry cannot function without you, you you're in sin because you're not obeying Ephesians 4 of what you yeah. were called to do. And so the goal should be that, you know, if I go to California next year, the Southern Baptist Convention, and, my, and the plane crashes and I die, mm-hmm. the whole church doesn't shrivel up and die because I'm gone. They just the, keep on. The ministry continues on. That's right. And that plurality creates that redundancy. Amen. And then the last thing I would say is, uh, this is why being post-millennial is awesome, because you think I about... you were amillennial. Beca- huh? I used to be. <laughs> we, we, we can talk about that. And eventually but, uh, you'll get to where he needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. Dispensation. Well, I, I'm not Praise hardcore post mill, but we're starting Matthew 20, 24 next week. So after Chris is done with that, I think I will be hardcore post mill. But, um, but uh, one, you know, one of the things that uh, Doug Wilson says 
um, regardless of whether people like him or not. One of the things that I think he says that's really good is that um, Christians need to start acting like they have posterity, like like mm-hmm. because we've we our our theology has been such that you know well if we're just going to get raptured out here and everything's swirling the drain then if I leave and the church dies well they're all going to get raptured out anyway so it's a big deal and I know not everybody that's dispensational believes that obviously. Right. But there's for the laity, there's kind of a general attitude of like it's just here. One, you know, one of the challenges we have with our building here, even though it's a newer building, is the people that designed it designed it for them. There was no thinking of will there ever be children in this church again? Are there going to be little babies here? Uh, you know, are there going to be young women here? Do they need certain facilities? Those things were not on the table at all. It was it's me and my thirty friends, and and uh, we're just going to build this for us, mm-hmm. and then Jesus is going to come back when we're all right. dead. Right. And so I think uh, part of it, when you think about your church government, it is again like what you guys are saying, having that vision of okay, uh, I posted this up in the elephant room, and like I don't think anybody got it, but like, what if we are the early church? Yeah. What if two thousand years in? I mean, what if it's ten thousand years before the Lord the Lord returns? Yeah, no man knows the day or the hour. In, in the early church, the emphasis was we, we've got oppression, we've got persecution, we've got challenges, we've got this mission ahead of us. Um, if we're not laying the foundation for somebody else to build upon, like the apostles did, then this thing isn't going to last. And what you've had is a lot of churches, if it's built on a man or a particular building or a particular program or whatever, mm-hmm. it's just not going to last. And that's the reason why the word has given us instruction of be raising up these men and even young men, right? Because Timothy sure. was a young man right. of saying, even these young men, uh, you know, teenagers don't exist in the Bible. I can preach on that, but they don't exist. They exist because we allow them to exist. They should be young men and women. That's the way that we should treat them in the church mm-hmm. and be raising them up that way. And if we do that, we will have a posterity and the church will survive. So I hope that if the Lord tarries, Barberville Baptist Church will be here in 100 years, right. not because of anything that I did, but because of something that the third generation disciple of a guy that I discipled in this church did. Right. Mm-hmm. That you know my great-grandchildren, one of them will be an elder in this mm-hmm. church um, or a deacon or the wife of an elder or deacon or whatever. That, that I should have that longer term vision of what are we doing now that's going to build a foundation for that next generation to to reach Hayway County with because we're probably not going to reach all of it in this generation. Right. But that doesn't mean I can't lay some track that out stop, for, for the next person to keep going. Looking 100 years in the future and saying, what right. can I do right now that will ensure to the right. best of my ability? that this ministry will be successful in 100 years. And the thing is, is I think that's, that's part of the importance of, of having pastors is that leadership, because like what we've been talking about, the average layperson in the church, they've been in such an unhealthy environment. They they're wondering if the pastor is going to be there five years from now or, or two years from now. Uh, They're not thinking about a hundred years later. Right. The pastor needs to be the one that, that has that vision to lay out of, Hey, I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to this church unless God takes me somewhere else. And we're going to start laying track out for the, for well, the next and generation. If you think about it, it's a hierarchy of needs because churches that are in trouble now, they don't have the stability to look into the future. They're just right. trying to fix the problems they have now because they're about to shut the doors now. Right. So that's why it's so important to have a healthy church so then you can begin to look long-term. And it's really a blessing to be a part of a healthy church where you do have that um, that luxury of being able to say, what can we do today? Because we're healthy right now, so we can look 100 years in the future because we're not trying to you know, keep the doors open. I, I, you know? Sunday I preached Isaiah 53.10 uh, prophesying about Jesus, 
And at the end, it says that the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And I told the church, that is our church growth strategy, is that uh, if if the church is in the hand of Jesus, it will prosper. Amen. So that's, that, that is the promise for church growth. Mm-hmm. So it's not programs. It's not good preachers. It's not any of that kind of stuff. Basically, if we get out of his way and let him build the church the way he wants, according to scripture, like what we're talking about, the church will grow. And so that there has to be that optimism there of, hey, Amen. listen, I know you guys have seen a lot of pastors. I know you've had a lot of bad experiences. I know there's a lot of hurt and broken relationships in the church. There's trust issues. There's all these kind of things. We're not going to fix it by changing the music. We're not going to fix it by uh, painting the building or building a new building or hiring a children's director. That's not how any of it's going to change. It's going to change when we get out of the way and we let Jesus build his church according to scripture, then you have guaranteed success. Yeah. Yeah. But let me make one final point that we haven't really hit on. And that is why having a plurality of elders is so important. Mm -hmm. We're all fallen people. Mm -hmm. And even though we've, been regenerate, have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we don't always yield to him. And so we have great capacity for doing wrong. I mean, I always say if a man like David, a man after God's own heart, in that time of weakness could do what he did, then I certainly am capable of doing that. So we need those checks and balances because, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So whether it's in a, a board of deacons trying to run things or whether it be in some other leadership group in the church, it might be a couple of women that are you know, trying to be in control of everything or a, or a pastor. When, when there's that kind of authority without accountability, mm-hmm. you're just setting yourself up, up for failure. And we've seen that with all those celebrity pastors like you've, oh, you've yeah. mentioned there. So, so I think that one of the things that I understand is that I need somebody looking over my shoulder. I, I need somebody to help me, uh, you know, be held accountable. It's a vital role that we have as we share together that kind of leadership. Yeah, that's good. And you have to be careful because some of those people who have fallen that we know of, the well-known names, they may have considered themselves with a plurality of elders, but yeah. there was not an equality of no, right. elders. Right. It wasn't right. functioning and, biblically. And so basically yeah. it's a senior pastor with other staff underneath, but, the they, but they use the terminology. They, use the terminology yeah, they like elders. the terminology, right. but they were his and yes men. Yeah, they yeah, were exactly. they were the yes men. Uh, he could, you know, hire and fire whatever as he pleased. Uh, he can bring people in that he knew was going to go along with him, and if if they didn't, you know, they get run over by the bus or whatever right, it is. Right. Um, and so we've got to be extremely careful. And and our churches, if there are church folks out there watching this, not not ministry people, but if if you're a member of a church, if you're in the laity. Um, we're not advocating for um, a, a group that just sits on top as a CEO of a company right, and dictates right, everything. Right. Uh, we're talking about men of God who are called by God to serve in this capacity. Yeah. Um, and then they hold one another accountable, but ultimately the church does too. Mm-hmm. Right, that's right. Um, yeah. and, but actually, if something is uh, out of whack, the elders themselves should be the first ones to pick it up. Right, They should know each other well enough. And yeah. I think that's a part of this too. Accountability is not just being on staff together. Right, It's being in each other's lives. It's being yeah. friends. Yeah. It's hanging sure. out outside of the church context. And so if you're, you're going to go that route, and I hope you do to a plurality of elders, 
um, then that's the route you need to go. I mean, it, it needs to be men of God who are going to sit around a table and they're going to pray, they're going to fast, they're going to do whatever needs to be done to determine the direction that the church needs to go. Amen. And if Ben over here gets out of line and the rest of us see that, we we call him to the table. You know, yep. we we say, Ben, hey, you need to get right. You need to turn back to Christ. You need to repent of that sin, whatever it is. Um, and and we hold one another accountable in those ways. But just because Ben is the the lead teacher, lead preacher, whatever you want to call him, mm -hmm. that doesn't make him get a double vote. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, and and yeah. I would I would everybody say gets one vote. You, everybody gets you one see vote. that scripturally, right. and and exactly. even you, you I would point to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts. You know, you have the apostles there. Obviously, when Peter speaks, it carries some weight. Everybody okay. listens when Peter speaks, and Luke felt like it was important to write out. There was a disagreement about some of these things concerning the law and Jewish believers and all that, and Peter spoke up and said, you know, whatever he said, and, and it was understood that there was leadership there, but it was a council. It wasn't Peter dictating to them as the pope saying this is the way it's going to be it was saying okay we've got we've got good meaning brothers that love the lord that are trying to obey god's word that have honest disagreements about some of these issues how can we meet in the middle on some on some of these things and keep the church unified and that's what the elders do mm -hmm. and i would say uh, working through those disagreements isn't just matters of sin it's matters of uh of uh preference or secondary or tertiary doctrines right. or whatever so, I mean, there's been even times recently where we've had elders meetings where I've brought up an objection to something and say, I don't really like this. I don't think we should do this. And I got voted down on it. Right. Um, and uh, being okay with that because I'm trusting more in the in the Holy Spirit working through the process than I am in, in – because I, I think I'm right. Y'all know this. Anybody that's listened to this podcast for a long time <laughs> knows I think the things that I think because I think that they're more correct than somebody else. So if I thought they were wrong, I wouldn't believe them. I only believe right things. Right. So if I have an opinion about something in the church or I would want it to be this way or that way or whatever, it's a strong opinion. I don't have weak opinions about things. But there has to be times where I have to yield it and say, okay, are these men are all these men qualified, which is what we talked about. That's the big thing. Now, if this guy's carnal over here and he doesn't like what I have to say, and he's he was elected as an elder or a deacon in the church, I don't really care what he thinks. But if they're qualified men, and like you said, I know these guys, I know they're godly men, I know they're in mm -hmm. the word, I know that they're in prayer, and they're saying, brother, I hear what you're saying, but I disagree with you. I have to I have to respect that and say, you know what? It's not my church. It's the Lord's church, and I'm going to yield to these men because these men are also my pastors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, just like what you were saying, if I'm the one that's doing most of the preaching, the reality is the other elders are my pastors. So I, at the end of the day, I've, I've told our church this. All the pastors are church members. Right. They start out as church members. That's that's where they're at. And so we're under discipline the same way as everybody else. Right. We're held accountable to one another, and we're actually held to an even higher standard because there is a stricter judgment for those who teach um, in doing that. But um, they're my pastors that I go to if I have problems that I, if I need to confess sin or I need to get right or I need correction, that that's available there. These situations with guys that have elders and then you see them going rogue, they don't have that. that well, that's think not about how they're actually Even Peter was rebuked by Paul, mm -hmm. you know, and Peter was the leader, in my opinion, of the apostles. And, you know, yeah. he was rebuked by Paul. He was not above right. rebuke. Right. right. And in that Jerusalem council that you mentioned, who gets the last word? It's James, who's the, quote, Judaizer. Of, the, yeah. of that church <laughs> of the there, council. the yeah. First right. Baptist Church of Jerusalem. He's right. the one that stands up and says, oh, brothers, here's what we're going to do with this. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So so yeah. I think I think there can be that interchange among leaders that way. Right, mm -hmm. right. 
That's good. Absolutely. Well, I mean, unless you guys have anything else to I got say, a whole lot I got a whole lot more to uh, say, but not a whole lot more time. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're we're drawing <laughs> to a close right here. We could go on and on and on about this. There's a lot of uh text of scripture that we could analyze. You can go for yourself, you know, first Timothy chapter three, first Timothy chapter four, Titus chapter one. Uh you, you can go in the scriptures, Acts chapter six, uh, all of these we've kind of mentioned here or we've hit on a little bit. Uh, go and delve into it yourself and, and see what the scriptures tell you about this. If you're questioning um, in your church, you know, are we doing things the right way? Um, we're just giving out ideas. Just consult the scripture because mm-hmm. the scripture will lead you exactly where oh, you need yeah. to go. That's God right. will lead you and your church uh, exactly where you need to go. Um, and as we close out, I just want to say this and, and talk about the, the plurality of elders. Uh, one of the things that most people don't know who are not in ministry is it's extremely hard for a pastor or an elder to have friends within the church. Mm-hmm. Now, we can have friends in a, you know, in a sense of we yeah. love hanging out together, we hang out, whatever. But most of the time, you're not going to share those deep thoughts. You're not going to come to them and talk to them about issues in the church or, mm-hmm. or whatever. I would venture to say that if your pastors would have a plurality of elders, if, if that would be the situation, it would be very beneficial for them mm-hmm. and in turn beneficial for the church for you to have this, that they can go to, that they can sh- bounce these ideas off of, that they can share their concerns and truly be held accountable. Uh, let's be honest. A lot of pastors think that if they really open themselves up to uh, to a certain degree and share some things, that at some point that's going to come back to bite them. Um, and, and it has. Unfortunately, the reason why a lot of pastors feel that way is because it has happened in the past. Uh, and so this would actually be extremely beneficial to have that. So um, pray for your pastors. Pray for your deacons. Um, if, if they're truly men called by God to serve in your church, um, then then they've got a, a task ahead of them that they can only achieve mm-hmm. through the power of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. just like these guys in Acts chapter 6. So pray for those deacons, pray for your pastors, and until the next time, we uh, really appreciate you. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time. You can continue the conversation online by visiting us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the number four horsemen. Don't forget to tell your friends and enemies about the podcast and be sure to subscribe and review. 